Good morning. If you're a guest with us, my name is Rob, one of the ministers here, and I have the, the privilege of teaching this morning. We're going to be starting a brand new teaching series. And just a little disclaimer, we're going to be looking at a lot of different scriptures. And so I want to encourage you, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and get it. Prepare to take some notes. The scriptures will appear on the screen. Uh, it's a little more teaching today, uh, just to set the stage for the entire uh, series that we're about to launch into and spend really most of our fall and into the winter in First and Second uh, Timothy. If you're a guest, I want to put a, a, just remind you of a few things. Uh, one is, uh, when we come to church here at New Hope, one of the things you'll hear us say is we want to be disciples who make disciples. We want church to be more than an experience that you come to on a Sunday morning. And so we have to really fight for that in this culture. So that it's not just a seat that you sit in or a stage that you watch and then you mark it off your checklist that you went to church. Um, and so one of the best ways to do that is to get involved in community. And so we do that in a variety of ways. We have this connect card that's in the seat back in front of you. When you fill that card out, it allows us to know a couple things. One, we actually do care that you're here, uh, not just a number in a seat. We want to know that you were here, your family was here. We want to know how we can meet your needs. And you can put how you want to get connected to our church, what you're interested in learning about. And then the prayer request on the back has become, quickly become the group of elders uh, that God has called to lead this church. That's quickly become one of our favorite things. Because many of you are very honest on those cards, and you fill out these connect cards, and then we get a list of prayers printed up, and we get to pour over the families in our church, and it's an honor to do that. And so we invite you to fill that connect card out each week for those reasons. At the end of the service, we'll have a time of offering. You can put that card in the tray, and uh, we can get you connected and begin to pray uh, for you and your family. Um, this morning, I want to uh, let you know one other thing. Uh, yesterday, we had a really great time as myself and the other elders, we had a retreat. And I tell you that for a variety of reasons. One, we don't want, you to, want it to go unnoticed that the leadership of your church all the men gave an entire day up Saturday. We went and spent the entire day uh, planning and praying over the vision that God is laying on the hearts of the leadership for this church. And we prayed for you guys. We prayed for the impact we might have in this community, the long-term uh, vision that we might have for this church. And um, I want you to know from me to you, uh, as somebody who's in ministry, has a lot of friends in ministry, that's rare. I mean, I sat in that room yesterday with these guys, and uh, my heart was just exploding with gratitude. What an incredible thing uh, to see these men just praying over the church. They genuinely love this place. And I want to pass that on to you, to know that the leadership of your church cares and loves. Uh, it's not just something you come to. It's not a seat you sit in. It's not a stage you watch. It, it is a family to belong to. And we're very grateful for that. A lot of that's going to be talked about in this sermon series. And so it's just kind of a perfect timing. God and His providence aligned all this together. And so we're going to spend some time over the next few months talking about what a church is. Uh, the title of the series is This Is Us. It's just a statement to say, hey, this is who we are. And this is what we're all about. This is what it looks like to be a part of a church. This is what it looks like to be a part of a church family. The Apostle Paul had a protege named Timothy. And Timothy, you, you might hear that in church. It's, it almost, he, yeah, he was a person, but his name has almost become like uh, church language. If you've got a young person in your church that aspires to be in ministry, maybe a missionary, you uh, raise them up, you give them what they need, you send them out, they get the training, they go do ministry, they come back to their home church, and we reference them as a Timothy of the church. And you're going to learn why throughout this series. Uh, there's a lot of great lessons to learn, and I think primarily what we're going to learn is what the Bible says a church should look like. What are some of the non-negotiables? Because Paul was writing to Timothy as he is laboring to establish a str and strengthen a church, and he has a lot to say to us about that. So as we get started... I'd like to pray for us, um, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Father, thank you 
for the opportunity we have to open your word. We don't take that for granted, God. As we, we get to hold in our hands the words of the living God, we are grateful. And Father, we come and we ask you through the working of your spirit in our lives, speak to us. We are here and we are prepared to hear from you. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin a series on what the church looks like, looking, walking through these two books, I thought, what better way to launch a series on the church than to have a quote from the famous theologian Justin Bieber. Uh, and so in an article written several months ago, and look, I don't know if this is still his stance, okay? Things get written. I'm sure that guy is not adequately represented all the time. He's earned some of it, but probably not all of it. Uh, but he did say this when asked about faith and being a part of a church. A lot of people who are religious, I think they get lost. You see, they go to church they, just to go to church. I'm not trying to disrespect him, though he does with the statement. But for me, I focus more on praying and talking to him, God. I don't have to go to church. Now, many people think just like Justin Bieber, right? Whether they want to admit it or not, whether they even recognize it or not. We go through different experiences. We, we, we walk through different um, uh, like, I have different questions that we want answered. We begin to wrestle with, like, hey, I love Jesus. I know I'm all in on Jesus, but do I really need the church? And as they explore this, they come to this conclusion, no, I don't really need the church. And it's a shame that they do because of what Paul writes to Timothy. I like what Todd uh, Balsinger says about uh, the church in his book, It Takes a Church to Raise a Christian. He says this, More than any before us, any generation before us, an American today believes, I must write the script of my own life. The thought that such a script must be subordinated to the grand, the grand narrative of the Bible is a foreign one. The fact that our story would be a part of a bigger story just is foreign to us. Still more alarming is the idea that this surrender of our personal story to God's story must be mediated by a community of fallen people who we, frankly, don't want getting in our way and meddling with our own hopes and our own dreams. See, I think many people live this way and for a variety of reasons. And here's the deal, just being transparent. A lot of your reasons are legitimate. You've walked through a really painful, difficult experience in church. Somebody said something or offended your family or wasn't there for you or you had expectations that didn't get met. Or maybe you've never even been a part of a church because you've just listened to what other people have said and the culture has dictated your thoughts on this idea. Or maybe you were part of a church and you kind of studied your way out of it, if you will. Whatever your reason, I think it's a really good idea for the next few weeks and months to focus on what is good about church, what does the Bible teach us the church should focus on and be a part of? And so as we start this series, here's the disclaimer. We're going to be jumping around in the book of Acts a little bit today. And if you've been a part of New Hope for a while, admittedly, we've talked a little bit about this background. It's the background of Paul and Timothy's relationship and how it sets the stage for this letter he would write to Timothy. And so you may have heard some of it, but there's always more to learn. Okay, We, we say it often with some of the I actually had lunch with a college kid this past week, and he quoted something I'd said to him six years before, which scares you, right? Anytime, like, man, that's scary. <laughs> Just choose your words wisely. I said, hey, repetition is the mother of wisdom. Uh, because a lot of wisdom comes from lear like not learning something new, but repeating and going back to timeless truth that you need to be reminded of. And so we're going to look in Acts chapter 16 first. If you have your Bible, you can open it up. Acts chapter 16, this is where Paul and Timothy meet. This is their first encounter. And so when you're going to read a letter written from one guy to the other, it really helps to know how they met. And so Acts chapter 16, Paul's on a missionary journey, and he comes to uh, this, uh, the place of, uh, right, he came to Derby and Lystra, and he meets Timothy. So verse 1, 
a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. So Timothy has already encountered the gospel through his mother and his grandmother. But his father was a Greek. He was not a believer. He's not a Christian. Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So his reputation was good. He had a really good standing in the community. People spoke highly of him. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, many people think Timothy could have been in his young teens, mid-teens, late teens, even early 20s. Either way, he's young. Young guy, has a really good reputation. Uh, he's established a great reputation because of his godly character. You see, when Paul says that the brothers spoke highly of him, when, when Luke's describing this encounter, uh, Paul would have checked him out. So Paul would have spent time with the family. He would have spent time talking to other people, getting a kind of uh, all the info he needed on this young kid, and he checked out across the board. Not only that, Timothy had a deep love for reaching lost people with the gospel. You might ask yourself, how do we know that? We know that because we just read that Timothy allowed Paul to circumcise him in order to go on this mission trip. You've got to have a deep love for what you're getting ready to go and do in your teenage years to allow somebody to circumcise you. It's just reality, right? So he's, he's willing to allow Paul to do this in an effort to accompany him on these trips. And then he does. And then Timothy gets a master's level course, master PhD level education in what it means to plant churches. So he walks alongside the Apostle Paul and they go into these different cities and you read about almost like their adventures in the book of Acts. They go into one city and they plant a church and the, the Apostle Paul establishes this church and as he's preaching the gospel, God does incredible things in that city and the people don't like it so they try to kill him and they run him out of town and Timothy said, like, what in the world? Uh, he didn't mean it. I'm sorry. Let me clean up the mess that the Apostle Paul made. And then he goes back with Paul and they're traveling all over the place, eventually coming to a city called Ephesus. And so if you flip over to Acts chapter 20, we're going to read about Paul's uh, feelings, his thoughts about this great city. Um, called Ephesus. Now, Paul spent a lot of time there. He loved this city. It was a strategic city. Ephesus is a port city. Okay? It would be located in modern-day Turkey, okay? but it's actually not because it was destroyed. And you can still go, uh, but it's not a uh, thriving, alive city that it once was. It was the port city to get to Asia Minor. So if anybody wanted to send goods to any part of the world that was there, you'd go to Ephesus. And from there, everything would go out. Everything would come back. Lots of people, lots of energy, lots of excitement, uh, diverse culture. Paul goes there, and he begins to try to strengthen this church, spends a lot of time there, and we pick up in verse 17 of chapter 20. Now from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And they came to him, and now he's going to say something to them. And so Paul calls all the elders. Remember, these are men he had spent time with. Think about it. If you're him, if you're on this journey, you know these guys really well. You have a deep love and care for them. Paul had just gone on a little short trip where he didn't do much, just raised someone from the dead. Then he came back, and he wants to gather these people together, and he wants to pour into them and spend some time with them because he knows the Holy Spirit's leading him to leave them. And so he has a very serious conversation because he has a very serious affection for these people. He says, You yourselves know that I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, <clears throat> serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. He said, Look, we've been through a lot. We've been through a lot. Everything I'm about to tell you comes from the foundation, the fact that you watched me live. I'm not some guest speaker showing up telling you everything that you have to go and do. I'm the guy that rubbed shoulders with you, that lived difficult uh, circumstances with you, that endured trials and persecution. <clears throat> and we went through it together. <clears throat> so now he says this. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying 
both to Jews and to Greeks, of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained. That word could be translated commanded by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So he comes to him and he sets the stage for him. He says, look, we've been through a lot, guys. And one of the things I, I, I want you to remember is that I tried really hard to do nothing but give you Jesus. I mean, I preached to you when we gathered together, similar to the way we're gathered together now. And I went from home to home and to each of the churches there. And I tried to strengthen you and to, to disciple you and to teach you. I gave you the full message of the gospel. And then Paul summarizes his life in this next verse in one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. And here's the thing I want you to grab from this verse. Look, and I don't mean to undermine any of your experiences in life, but I, I've come to this conclusion in my own life, and so I share it with you. All of life, everything you walk through, every difficult, every good, every situation is simple for the Christian. Now, that doesn't make it easy. Still difficult, still painful, still hard, but simple. And Paul summarizes this. Remember, he just said he was beaten. He was mistreated. He was rejected. He went through tears. He went through trials. And then he summarizes all of it. And he says, but at the end of the day, it was really simple. Painful, difficult, yes, but simple. And he says in verse 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the ministry, the, the, the mercy and the grace of God. He continues on after saying, hey, life's real simple for me. I just want people to know Jesus. No matter where I find myself, no matter how good the situation or bad the situation. And then he's telling them, and you know that to be true. We're going to talk about here in a little while that your behaviors, the things that you do, will either confirm or betray your beliefs, the things you claim to believe. And for Paul, he said, just, you know that I believe this. Look at the way I lived when I was among you. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of you all. He says that because he's saying, I gave you the whole gospel. He, in fact, he, that's what he says. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So no blood on my hands. I gave you everything. I gave you the whole truth. I fully prepared you and given you everything that you need. And he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. So God has set you aside to be an elder, an overseer, a pastor of this church, this flock. Care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Your, your, this ministry you have was purchased with a price, and, and Jesus died for it, and so take it very seriously. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you in tears. And now I commend you to God, and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he's saying, look, I say all of this to you. I remind you of the life I lived with you. I remind you of the simplicity of my mission in life. And you can testify to it by watching me live and having listened to the full gospel preached to you the whole time. I am telling you all that to say, when I leave, they're coming. These fierce wolves. Now, we're numb to that because of media and our, over, our overexposure to uh, difficult scenery and stuff. So when you hear the word fierce wolf, you're just thinking like a puppy. But it's like fierce wolf. He is trying to create imagery to say these guys are coming to seek, kill, and destroy. And they're going to come into the church from the outside, and they're going to start twisting and, and distorting the truth and pulling disciples away from Jesus. But not only that, you're going to have people from among your own flock that get so distracted that they begin to teach false doctrines. And he's saying the whole time, you have to be careful. Guard the truth. Guard the truth. 
This is why we have elders, friends. We're going to talk more about the role of elder in a few weeks, but why we have elders, God has appointed an eldership to oversee a flock to protect the truth, the doctrine in the church. And what we learn from Paul's encounter in Acts chapter 20 before we go to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 is a few different things. The first one is this. Paul's deepest concern, his deepest concern for the church in Ephesus was that they guard and protect the truth. Number one concern for him, guard and protect the truth. Do not let the truth wander. Do not let the truth be distorted. Look, he would not only say it here, he says it in First and Second Timothy. He wrote him a letter called Ephesians that we read where he guard, said, guard the truth, protect the truth. Not only that, uh, John the Apostle would spend time in Ephesus and he would do the same thing. Man, please protect the truth, guard the truth because once that foundation's cracked, everything else is susceptible to crumble. Guard the truth. Legend even has it that Mary, the mother of Jesus, lived in Ephesus after the resurrection. But just think about this. If you had a question about guarding the truth, protecting the truth of the Bible, and you lived in Ephesus, you had Priscilla, Aquila, Paul, Timothy, John, Mary. All you do is go down the road and knock on the door, and these people actually knew Jesus, and you just ask them, like, is this what he meant? Is this what it means to protect the truth? That's like a varsity-level church staff. Like, our church staff is like the C team on JV compared to that. Like, incredible. You get to go and just spend all the time you want with these people and learn so much from them. He says, protect the truth, guard the truth. It's extremely important. The second thing you learn when you read Acts is you learn that Paul had a very caring yet strategic relationship with Timothy. Like, he loved the guy, but it wasn't just left there. Like, many of us, we have close friendships and close relationships, and that's good because you need them. But every once in a while, you develop a close relationship that requires that you're strategic with it. And here's what I mean. He met Timothy. He spent time with Timothy's family. He then invited Timothy into a discipleship relationship. That's a little bit, that's one step further. He begins to disciple him and develop the faith inside this young kid. And then he says, why don't you join me and come on this trip with me? And now he goes right with him and does firsthand ministry right alongside Paul. So now he's getting like really close to him in this really deep friendship. And then when the time was right, Paul said, now I need to strategically, I've invested in you for years. I'm sending you now. And I'm going to go ahead and release you to go do ministry on your own because I've prepared you. Because I wasn't just nonchalantly going through this friendship and relationship we have. I was intentionally pouring into you for the purpose of sending you to be a missionary in your own context. Which brings us to the third thing that we learn in Acts about Paul and Timothy and what will prepare us to understand this letter is this. Paul was concerned for the church in Ephesus, but yet he was confident enough to leave. Think about this. Three years of his life spent day in and day out with these people. Three years of his life. And for those three years, all he wanted to do is to pour into them. Think about how easy it would have been for him to remain comfortable. Like, hey, I'm teaching in the large gathering. I'm going house to house. I've got a good thing going here. I really like these people. How do we know we like them? Because at the end of Acts 20, when Paul actually leaves, he weeps. You don't cry for people you don't care about. So he, he was weeping having to leave these people. He loved them. How comfortable it could have been for him to set up shop and have a great gig right there. But Paul understood something. The Holy Spirit commanded him to go. And he viewed himself as a slave of the, of the, the Lord Jesus. And so he just said, wherever Jesus calls me, I've got to go. And so it was time to go. But he was so strategic while he was there. He invested so carefully into the people that were around him that he was confident enough to leave even though he knew the wolves were coming. He says, I know they're coming. I know false teaching's on its way, but I've invested so much in you that I'm confident that you could be okay, and so he's going to go. And I learned a valuable lesson this week as I was studying this, and I look at my own children, and I think to myself, this question, which I pass on to you, because if I have to be tortured with something, so do you. And so here's the question. 
Will you expose your children to Jesus in such a way that they're going to be okay, that they'll be prepared to face the wolves even when you're not there to protect them? See, that's a whole different approach to parenting. A lot of us, we parent by protection. We call you a helicopter parent. And look, I've fallen into that myself. There are moments where, and there are seasons where you should only go into protection mode. Absolutely. But there is going to come a day when you're not there. And have you invested in them with the truth of the gospel in such a way that they will be ready when you're not there to protect them? Let me take it one step further. Will we be a church that invests in our people in such a way that we're not trying to build a stage, a platform, a brand, or a name, but instead we're trying to invest in people so strategically and intentionally that when we're not there to protect them, they are strong enough to stand on the truth against the wolves that will come their way and try to pull them away from the gospel. My prayer is yes. My number one concern in ministry, I would not want to be in ministry. You guys have no idea how nervous I get getting up here to preach. I would not want to be doing this if not to give everybody who's a part of New Hope the strength, the tools, the equipping necessary to stand firm on the foundation of God's truth when the wolves come and we can't be there to protect you. See, this is how much Paul loved Timothy. So the question is, how do we do that? Well, that's why we're doing this series. How do you prepare one another? How do you invest in one another to the point where you are confident, whether it's your kids or your friends or your neighbors or the people you love and strategically build a relationship with, how can you be sure that they will have the ability to stand firm even when it's difficult? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 is our first lesson in how to do this. Beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. There's that word command again. He is saying this. He's saying, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. What he is doing is establishing the authority of the message that's about to be relayed to the church at Ephesus through Timothy. And he is saying, this message comes from Paul under the authority of Jesus. I represent someone bigger, better, stronger. I am not the one who's coming up with this on my own. I'm compelled and commanded to tell you what I'm about to tell you from the Lord Jesus. And then he moves on. He says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now right away, he's reminding Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, here's the heart from which this message is coming from. You are my true child in the faith. What I think that literally means is if you study the language, you come to understand what he's saying is, I see in you the godly characteristics that God has developed in me. We have a connection here. Some of the same characteristics that you're developing, I have, and I've been giving to you and pouring into you. There's a strong connection. As I'm reading this this past week, I'm thinking to myself, man, uh, how much I'm drawn to, individually, personally, just me, Rob, I am drawn to the relationship of good dads and their sons. I don't know what it is. Like, it just pulls me in. I just love watching really good dads invest in their sons. Daughters are important, too. I have one. I love her. But it's Paul Timothy, okay? And so I love watching that. And there's some incredible dads in this church. You can just sit and watch. Like, man, you're doing it. You're nailing it. And I think part of the reason I'm drawn to it is because I didn't have that necessarily. Not in the faith, at least. See, my dad was killed when I was four years old. And so I kind of grew up longing for that relationship. I desperately wanted it. And by God's grace, he put certain people in my life to become that, to treat me like a true child in the faith. A couple weeks ago, my family was in North Carolina. We took a trip to North Carolina. You're like, oh, that's cool. You get to take trips. We've loaded four kids in a minivan, one of which was five months old and drove for 15 hours. It's not romantic. <laughs> We got to North Carolina, and we stayed with a family. Now, this family's important to me, 
they were a major part of my life. I was baptized in their swimming pool. Their names are Jay and David Tracy. I call her Miss Jay and him Mr. T out of reverence and respect for them and because I've met them when I was a kid and just always called them that. Jay and David have treated me like I was one of their biological children, and I'm not. I'm not related to them at all. I was baptized in their swimming pool. I stayed at their house as a high school senior for a little while. They've fed me numerous meals, given me great experiences. And Mr. Tracy uh, taught me how to tie a tie, and the first suit I ever wore was actually his suit, but he's like 6'5". It was super weird. as a wedding. I had to roll up the sleeves. Soup. Totally a fashion statement. Anyway, uh, they, they invested in me. They cared for me. She flew out for the birth of our children, except for when she was battling breast cancer and couldn't make the trip. And so we get to their house, and we're hanging out, and it just hit me. You know, I've been reading ahead of time. I was on a study break reading ahead for this sermon series, and um, it just hit me. Like, man, this is like what it feels like to have a dad invest in you. Because I remember sitting with Mr. Tracy and talking leadership. He's a high-level leader at a really big company, and so what does it mean to lead teams that lead teams? And he's just pouring it into me. I remember saying, here's my financial life. Here it is. I just, un- I just told him everything about our finances, which is super nerve-wracking. <laughs> And he just invested in me. He said, here's what I would think. Here's how what I would do this. I would really consider doing this and this. And he just treated me like one of his sons. And it was like I was hearing, Rob, my true child in the faith, grace, peace, and mercy to you. This is the relationship Paul had with Timothy. He loved him. And Timothy knew it. It, it wasn't just Paul saying it. Timothy knew that Paul loved him. So now Paul leads into the message. And he says this, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge, so here's the motive, the aim of this charge, the motive of me telling you this, is love. I love you and I love these people. And it comes, it comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, certain people, by swerving from these things... They've wandered into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They don't even understand the law. And they're trying to teach other people to obey the law. And so all that they're doing is pulling people away from the truth of God's word. You see, Paul would usually open his letters and he would say, here's who's writing on Paul. I'm writing to this person. And now I'm so thankful for you. I'm going to pray for you. And I give thanks in all my prayers for you and my remembering of you. I'm sure he felt that way about Timothy, and yet there's this urgency for him to jump right into the message here. I mean, he didn't do any greeting. It was just a simple greeting, and then, hey, I've got to address this issue because this is so extremely important, Timothy. There are people teaching false things, pulling people away from the truth of the, the gospel, which I labored for three years to clarify in that place, and I've sent my number one person to this church. As a matter of fact, Paul would send Timothy, or desire to send Timothy to Philippi, and in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, he told the Philippians, he said, man, I want to send Timothy to you so bad because I don't know anyone. I've got no one that will care for you like him. See, there's no mistake that Paul sent Timothy here. And he says, I love these people. And now they're being attacked by the wolves that I said were going to come. And the wolves are winning. And we've got to put an end to it. We've got to guard and protect the truth. He says, look, even the smallest sin, the smallest struggle, if left unchecked, will eat you alive, Timothy. It might not feel like a big deal. But it's a big deal. See, the danger of sin, the danger of sin in your life and in mine, is not the, how wicked or immoral the act is, but that the presence of God that you're driving out because of that sin. You're driving God's presence out of your life. See, when you reject God's commands, no matter how small, you put yourself outside of His protection. No matter how small the sin or the false teaching or what you allow to influence your heart and your mind, no matter how small it is, you're driving yourself away from God's protection 
And that one area that you're allowing that to happen in in your life will be the avenue by which the enemy inserts poison into your life that will ultimately kill you, spiritually speaking. You see, that's why Paul's so concerned here. You might think, man, that, what, what is the big deal? These guys are just talking about genealogies, right? They were taking the Old Testament and reading these genealogies and pulling philosophical and, and weird statements out of it, making people believe it, and then misinterpreting the law and telling people these things are important. And Paul's the whole time saying, remember how simple this was? It's the gospel. And you're thinking, man, what's the big deal, Rob? People have different interpretations. They understand different things. And you can't, you can't oversee all this stuff. People are going to believe different things. And they didn't even have tel- televangelists. So we got people on TV spouting all kinds of crazy things. And we're going to be exposed to it. What's the big deal? The, the big deal is the warning. Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose you bought a, a 5,000 square foot house. You're like, what? Yeah, I like where this is going. Me too. And this house was like everything you ever wanted it to be. I mean, it was updated. It had all the, the features you wanted. I mean, you couldn't dream of a, a better house than this house. And the owner of this house comes to you and says, man, you really love this house. I'll give you 70% off market value. You can have this house. And you're like, are you kidding me? Yes, it's in our budget now. We're going to buy this house. And you get ready to buy it. He goes, one condition. There's this one nail in the living room. I get to control the nail forever. You can have the whole house, but just this tiny little nail. And it sticks in the roof of the living room. I get to have the nail. You have the whole house. You're like, 70% off. This is my dream house. One nail. No big deal. Let's do it. You buy the house. A couple weeks into it, you're really enjoying it. You think everything's good. He comes by the house. He says, hey, I I need to do this. And he hangs a rotting deer carcass in the middle of your living room on his one nail. Now, you're thinking, one nail, no big deal, Rob. What's the big deal? One nail has now become a stench of death. And now that house is not the house you want to be living in and raising your family in and being a part of. All of a sudden, the stench of death is looming around that home and, and causing you all kinds of trouble. And Paul is saying, this is what false teaching does. This is it. You think, no big deal. It's just one doctrine. It's just one teaching. No big, it's just one nail, not a big deal, until the smell of death begins to saturate your home everywhere. And what you thought was no big deal has now become an extremely big deal. And Paul's telling Timothy, protect the truth because it is the foundation upon which everything else is built. And if you're not careful, that one nail will lead to a cracked foundation. And ultimately, that house will come crumbling down. No matter how small unchecked sin is, if, it, if it's left unchecked, it's going to destroy you. Paul continues. He says, now let me change directions here a little bit. He says, let me add some correction to this. Verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, and for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so he says, look, the law is not bad. Even the thing that they're using and completely misinterpreting in and of itself is not bad if you understand its purpose. And so he says, let me remind you, Timothy, so you can remind the elders who will then remind the church. Let me remind you the purpose of the law. And we've, I've used this analogy before. It's the best one I've ever heard. The law in the Old Testament, God's standards for living are like an MRI. When you go to the doctor and you get an MRI, the MRI, and you go in and it reveals, man, you, you've torn something in your knee. You, you have something wrong with your leg. You come out and it identifies the problem. You cannot return to the MRI to have it fix the problem that it identified. That's the law. And that's what Paul's saying. All the law does is show us we've got a really big problem. But the law in and of itself can't fix it because we could never live up to it. 
It's like going back into the MRI machine, hoping that it'll fix what's gone wrong. He says it can't do that. It was never intended to do that. All it does is, and then he lists out all those sins. He says all it does is show us that we're this. Here's what I've learned in my life, my pers personally. Every time I return to God's standards, I'm reminded of my need for his grace. Because I'm not good enough. I can't live up to it. This is what Paul's reminding me. You're not good enough. Like, you want to obey the law, that false teaching? It's going to lead to despair because you'll never be good enough. You'll never live up to God's standards. And he says, now that's in accordance with the gospel because the law's purpose was to point to something better. And that's the truth that Jesus did for you what you were powerless to do for yourselves, that while you were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for you. That he came and he lived the life you couldn't live for yourself, overcoming what the law would ultimately give you, which was death. And he became for you what you could not do. You couldn't do it for yourself. He accomplished it. And he died for you. Then he defeated death. This is why we gather. This is what we teach is what he's telling them. This is what you bank everything on. This is the purpose of the law to point to the gospel. This is why when you meet as a church, you remind yourselves of the gospel. This is why all of your teaching must filter through the gospel. This is why every sermon needs to get to Jesus. Otherwise, it's just self-help and it's pointing you to the law and an effort that you can't do. But when you get to Jesus, you're reminded, oh yeah, what I couldn't do for myself, he did for me. And now my behavior is a response to his grace, not an effort to earn it. See, this is what Paul's trying to remind them of. You must kill false teachers because no matter how small that nail is, it will lead to death if you're not careful. So three takeaways, quickly. Three takeaways as we, we close out. What are the lessons we learn about what it means to guard the truth? Okay? How do we guard the truth? As individuals in our families, in our homes, as a church, how do we as a, a leadership and a, as a church body pursue the truth? How do we do that? The first one is this. You cannot defend the truth that you don't know. You can't. You can't defend truth that you're not familiar with. You can't bank on the fact that you memorized a bunch of scripture and Bible bowl as a seven-year-old, and now you're in your 30s, and you're thinking, I know enough about the Bible. I, I know the Bible. No, you know the law. You've memorized a bunch of rules. Are you in the Word of God, spending time in His Word, building a relationship with Him, not just following a religion, but pursuing a relationship? Getting to know Him as He pours out His heart to you through His spoken Word, it's through his written word and you're listening to it spoken and preaching and teaching and reading it on your own and devouring it and learning and developing a strong foundation of truth. You see, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 3 tell us, both tell us, be prepared in season and out of season to tell people why it is that this is important to you. Why is this your truth? Why is this the most important thing in your life? I read an article recently that said 56% of Americans say that they believe the Bible is inerrant and inspired by God. Only 19% of that 56% actually read the Bible. That's like saying, yes, I know that this, this great book, is perfectly from God and has the solution to everything I experience in my life, but no, I don't read it. <laughs> what? Ladies, let me be bad, bad guy here. How many of you, don't raise your hand. How many of you have read the entire Twilight series or Hunger Games series or Harry Potter series? You know all the entire story, but in your entire life you've never read through the Bible at all. And you tell me it's the Word of God. Guys, I'm going there. Here we go. Some of you are preparing to be in three, four, five different fantasy football leagues. And you'll memorize every single statistic of every player of every team so that you can maximize the, the effectiveness of your fantasy football team. You know, the you know every ESPN headline. But you couldn't tell me three verses in the Bible that have to do with your parenting or your marriage. And you couldn't find the, bu the book of Isaiah in the Bible without a table of contents. Now look, if you're somebody who's like, I can't either, but I'm trying. That's good. Keep trying. It's about the effort. It's about the motive. It's not about the product. 
Are you pursuing him and going after him? Are you just somebody that, yeah, God's cool. He's, he's here. So to protect this, what we've done as a church is our elders, we meet every Saturday morning, three Saturdays a month, and one Monday evening a month. And we open this up, and we read it together, and we ask hard questions. and we, Why? Because we want to make sure the foundation of this church is on the Word of God. Every minister's meeting, every minister on our staff, we have a Monday morning meeting, and we start that meeting by opening the Word of God. We start our week preparing to think through being on staff at this church by reading God's Word together and learning from it. Our number one core value as a church is biblical authority, and it always will be. As long as I'm a part of this church and I'm on this staff, it will always be biblical authority. We submit ourselves to God's Word and what it has to say to our lives. As a church this year in 2017, we're reading through the Read Scripture app. We're pouring ourselves into Scripture. All of this is for this purpose, so that you don't develop a dependency on a human being. So that you don't develop some dependency on whoever's up here teaching on the stage. So that you're developing in yourself the tools necessary to stand firm when the wolves attack and we're not there to protect. That's what it means to stand firm on God's truth and to defend His truth. You can't defend what you don't know. Number two, behavior will confirm or betray beliefs. And the church at Ephesus might have been like, yes, Timothy, yes, Timothy, yes, Timothy, and yes, John, and oh man, Jesus said we better do this and we're going to do that, and and, and yet today in Turkey, where Ephesus is, there's no church. So what they said they believed was betrayed by their actions. And the same is true in your life. You can say, I'm a Christian. I believe in the word of God. I believe what God tells me. I submit myself to his authority. And yet your behavior, if we watch you live, will either confirm that statement or it will betray it. And I've watched this over and over and over again in my life. I love taking college kids bungee jumping and cliff jumping. It's a lot of fun. The most fun part is the talkative macho guys. I mean, I love them. Because the whole way to Tennessee, when we're going on this trip, I mean, they're like, yeah, I'm going to jump. And when I jump, I'm going to do a flip off this cliff and land in that cold water. That's nothing. And like they like, genuinely believe in themselves, which is cute. And then they get up to bungee jump, and they're like, I'm going to jump and just kind of let my hands out. I love that feeling. It's so good. Then they get up on the platform of bungee jumping, and they look down, and they're like, oh, man. And their behavior betrays their beliefs. They believe they could do it. They jump off, and they're screaming, don't pee, don't pee. And they're holding really hot onto the bungee cord, and like, ah! That's so embarrassing. And then the five-foot, 85-pound soaking wet girl gets up there on the platform, jumps off, and throws her hands out. And she's just putting all those guys to shame every single time. You see, their, their mouth, what they said they believed, was betrayed by their behavior. And the same thing is true here in the church. If this is really truth in your life, it will show up. Or it won't. And so Paul says, make sure it is. Guard the truth. It is the foundation. Look for the nails in the living room. The last one is this. To guard the truth, you have to listen to the right voices. See, for Timothy, Paul's voice was louder than anyone else's voice. When this letter showed up, everything else's, the volume went down on it. And all he could hear was Paul's voice. That's how much Paul meant to him. Because he allowed Paul to be the primary influence for him, through Jesus, to be the primary influence in his life. And the same is true for us. Statistically speaking, you will become the sum of your five closest friends. You can't fight it. It's just true. The five people that you allow to be closest to you, you will become the sum average of those five. They will have a tremendous influence on you. I'd say it to this, this way to young kids. Show me your closest friends and I'll show you your future. You will become them. So the question is, whose voices are you allowing into your heart and into your mind and into your life? Are they ones that are speaking the same truth that you claim to believe? Are they the voices? See, for Paul... For Paul, he knew as soon as I speak to, to the people in Ephesus, because I know them, I'm not a guest speaker, I'm a, a pastor who loves and cares for them, my voice will be louder than that. Tim Keller says it this way, you can't know God, change deeply, or change the world apart from community. 
just has to be the right community. So friends, as we close out, I guess my encouragement to you would be this. Whose voice are you listening to? Who are you surrounding yourself with? Are you allowing them to help you point out the nails, the little nails that you think are no big deal but will end up becoming death? Are you allowing them to speak this truth into your life to help protect the foundation that if you're not careful, when the tide comes, and it'll come, it'll wipe your house out. If your foundation is not secure, here at New Hope, we are going to be committed with all of our heart to protecting and guarding the truth of God's word. Will you do the same?